Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and my co-pilot on this episode once again is Jason Snow. Hello, I'm happy to be here in the right-hand seat for this episode. We're back. We took uh, we took a fortnight off. And, yeah, uh, there's a, summer. There's a lot going on, mm-hmm. so we just uh, we skipped. And then, of course, what happens is the day before you're going to record, somebody sends a tweet and says, uh, "Did something happen? Is something wrong?" <laughs> like, no, we just skipped. Took, took a we little skipped. little time off. But we're back, and we have a lot of news yeah. to catch up on. This is one of those uh, all the news stories episodes. Just all news, all the yeah, way down. There's a lot going on. Lots of go- lots going on. You know, one thing that's going on apparently is that the James Webb uh, Space Telescope is still going on, as it's been going on for the last, seems like, 50 years. <laughs> yeah, so we've talked about this a bunch. They uh, Congress had put an $8 billion cap on the budget. NASA recently asked for another $800 million, and that set off a whole chain, whole chain of events. So the House Science Committee questioned both NASA and its contractors over the course of a couple of days about the progress of the James Webb telescope and, uh, I think to their credit, what happened to, to for us to end up in this in this boat together, the boat of the, the very expensive James Webb, very late James Webb telescope. All right, you can maybe argue some of these conversations have taken place years ago, and they have, but this was like a sort of a real focal point um, in the industry for the last couple couple of days. So as a reminder, Jason, we we're joking about how, how long it's been going on. The originally scheduled launch was 2007 with a price tag of about $500 million, which is shockingly less than what it's going to end up costing us. Yeah, it's this is the uh, you know increase ever increasing budget because it's it's now uh, it's totally going to be ready in twenty twenty one. Yep, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's totally only going to cost nine point six million dollars. That what a deal, what a bargain. Mm-hmm. So that's what twenty times what they said it was, and uh, I what is that fourteen years later, yeah. and they're not done yet. NASA has to go back to Congress and say, yeah, we need more. We need you to approve that we can keep going right. with this project. Right. Yeah. And that leads to some interesting conversations in those meetings. So uh, Northrop Grumman is the contractor here. And I actually kind of love this line of questioning. So the committee's chairman, Lamar Smith, basically asked the contractor why they shouldn't be on the hook for this latest $800 million. And their CEO, Wes Bush, said that it would, quote, seriously damage their relationship with NASA if Congress forced them to, to eat that $800 million. That's a really diplomatic way of saying, saying that, no, you know, we're just, we're not going to do that. Yeah, yeah. That also feels like a little bit of blame shifting, right? Like, let's, should we make this about NASA? Should we make this about Northrop Grumman paying the money? I, I, I don't know. And the reality is there's fault on both sides. So there's been a lot of reporting the last couple of months about human errors in assembly and testing. There were some parts that were actually damaged by workers. And, you know, to a degree that stuff happens, but then it's a question of like who's responsible for it. But there's also this this argument that to, to be had that the James Webb was so unlike anything else, really including today, we talked about its construction, how it has a hot side and a cold side. It's going out beyond the moon. Like, it's a very unusual 
telescope. And there's an argument to be made. And I don't know how far I buy into this. I'm curious what you think, that NASA just wasn't prepared to have accurate estimates done because no one's built something like this before. And uh, and NASA didn't have the, the knowledge to say, hey, 500 million just really doesn't seem like enough. I mean, 500 million is a lot of money. And uh, clearly, like you said, they've gone way, way past that. But but maybe there's fault on NASA's side as well of not being prepared and and not having the oversight in place to to clamp down on this once it started happening. Yeah, you could really argue that in the early 2000s, NASA should have been, obviously should have been more realistic about what this thing was going to be and uh, and that perhaps this project was a little too ambitious, that it's too great a leap forward and that there should have been something along the way that would have been, you know, better than Hubble, a step along the way. It feels like this was just kind of an overreach in terms of how much is new and different about this thing and how much it's going to cost. And, you know, the, the, the problem is that that was, that was 20 years ago. So, or or 15 years ago or 18 years ago, when, whenever, a long time ago, those people are, you know, some of them are gone and some of them may be still there, but like, it's a lesson to be learned. But at the same time, here we are, you know, they're still, they're getting very close to being and comp- completing this thing that will be a kind of great leap forward. And then that's the other part of it is great leaps forward, huge uh, projects like this. They cost a lot of money and they take a lot of time. And that's just kind of part of it that nobody's denying what kind of science uh, it's going to come out of this thing. But, um, you know, I get uh, both sides of this, which is, one, this shouldn't happen, and two, here we are, what are we going to do about it? We've already right. spent $8 billion, $9 billion. Uh, let's get this thing to the finish line. <laughs> it's the world's largest, like, sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it really, Yeah, but can, it really can you walk away after spending $9.5 mm-hmm. billion? Dollars? Can you walk away with it almost done? I don't think you can. I, I don't think you can either. You were talking about the sort of the scope of and how big of a, a leap it was. There's this, um, this it's now archived. Is how old this webpage is. It was published in 2007 on NASA's website, talking about ten inventions that were required for this telescope. And this was technology and processes that were that were come up with after like before construction could start. You had to work on these things, and right out of the gate, they were working on things that just hadn't been done before. You know, we talked, when we were talking about Mercury and Gemini and then the, the early Apollo missions, kind of a theme through those those years, those de- you know, that, that decade is like building blocks. Like we're going to uh, start with A and then we're going to test A and then we're going to add B to it. And then A and B are going to work together and then eventually we'll add C. And you slowly build up this program and... The James Webb doesn't seem to to be like that. It's such a a, a massive step forward. It reminds me, I, I may draw criticism here, but it reminds me a little bit of the leap from Apollo to the shuttle, where you have all of a sudden you have something that is so different from wh- where you've been before and requires so much innovation that it, in a way, it's impossible really to understand the cost and the time that it's going to take to build it, let alone maintain it. You know, we talked a lot about the shuttle where the turnaround time for in between flights, you know, the idea was you just rolled in the garage and kick the tires and it's ready to go again. In reality, they had to vastly overhaul the entire orbiter after every flight. 
And there, I think there are parallels here and maybe lessons to be learned that when you make a big jump like this, is not to is not to remove blame or fault, but to a degree you're you're entering into the unknown. And when you're talking about budgets and calendars, you know, unknowns and budgets and calendars don't aren't specifically compatible with each other. And you end up in in the boat we're in now. Yeah, and of course there's going to be fallout from this because the the money has to come from somewhere. And in fact, one of the things that uh, Bridenstine, the administrator at NASA now, uh, has said to Congress is that maybe they um, slow play W first, which is the next big space telescope project, which is a huge. Remember, that was the one that was originally going to be kind of, uh, there was a suggestion of defunding it. Right. And everybody said, well, wait a second. This is like one of the top priorities of the scientific community. You probably shouldn't do that. And they said, no, no, you're right. We shouldn't do that. Um, it's a wide field infrared survey telescope. But Bridenstine said, um, we need, the idea of W first was that James Webb Space Telescope would be out there and then W first would uh, follow so maybe they slow play it a little bit, not kill it or anything like that, but play play it a little bit more slowly and divert a little more time and money and attention to James Webb to get it finished. Although, again, I think we've said on this podcast that attention is not the problem because I believe people are working 24 hours a day on the James Webb Space yeah, Telescope. quite literally, 24 hours a the, day. Yeah, it's three, three eight-hour shifts. The issue is money and, you know, if mistakes and, and problems crop up. But the, still, Bridenstine has suggested that maybe uh, W1st slides back a little bit um, in order to allow this to be funded and finished. What do, what do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I'm glad that the telescope is moving forward. You know, we talked about how there was a lot of outcry when it was going to be removed from the budget. Does does this feel like it's on the surface, it's a solution to James Webb? Or do you get a sense that it's also sort of like, hey, you know, we're still going to do this, but we're not necessarily happy about it? Well, I mean, if Congress, I think the ideal thing would be for Congress to fund the overages on James Webb and keep developing W first totally. so that it can keep it could keep going right unless there are unless Bridenstine can make the case that like well there are people who could use their time more wisely focused on James Webb but I don't think that's the case I think this is about like looking through the cash or the uh, couch cushions for 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 change uh, in order to like help with the funding of this and if NASA has to steal from W first to get the James Webb telescope out the door then. I think so be it. But mm-hmm. ideally, they wouldn't. I, d- I think ideally, they would just get more funding and let that project continue as well. But that's kind of, that's that's where Congress holding the purse strings uh, makes a big difference. Yeah, I, I think we're in agreement there. Uh, ideally, NASA and Congress can find this money elsewhere. Uh, I guess we'll see. As, uh, at least at this time of this recording, they haven't made any final decisions. So it's still very much an ongoing situation. And I think it will be. I mean... We have a long history now of every time there's an overage, it's it's never the last one. Uh, maybe this will be. I mean, that's a big, you know, that's a big chunk of money. But I, I just, I, I, I find it hard to be hopeful that this is the last time we're going to be talking about this. Also, no pressure in the uh, congressional uh, committee. One of the things that came up was talking to, to, to Bridenstine. One of the people said, basically... To their former colleague, right? Because he was in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, this is uh, Rep- 
Representative Frank Lucas of Oklahoma. So again, from uh, Bridenstine's state. Your legacy, I suspect, will be determined by how well you, along with the wonderful people at NASA and all the contractors, blah, 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 deliver on finishing James Webb. So no pressure, Jim Bridenstine. Welcome to NASA. Ship this thing. Here's a a 15-year-old problem. Good luck. Yep. I don't envy that job. I can tell you that. Mm-mm. So let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some news from the uh, European Space Agency, the Italian Space Agency about about Mars. And so, oh, it's Mars. It's Mars. It's there. It's red. It's dusty. Very it's, dusty. It's pretty close to Earth right now. It pretty is. Close. Have you seen some of those pictures? It's really incredible. Yeah. It's the size of the full moon. Nope, that's not true. That, it's fake. It's not, the nose aren't true. The, what's going on in California? <laughs> it's just bright and, uh, and red. Bright and red. So uh, the Mars Express, which has been uh, circling the red planet, I think for 15 years, something like that. It has, Mars Express has several uh, capabilities, one of which is to use radar to study both the surface and under the surface of Mars. And over the last several years, they've been passing over this place uh, at the south uh, polar caps, those ice caps, the south pole of Mars, and looking at what seems to be water underneath some ice. And so an easy way to think about this is like subglacial lakes here uh, on Earth. It's very far below the temperature that water would normally freeze, but this water this water is very briny, has lots of salt in it, and lots of minerals in it, and that, that helps keep it liquid at colder temperatures. And it looks like, looking at, the, at this radar findings, that there is uh, a body of water here. And the estimate is like 20 kilometers across, but only maybe like a, a meter deep. So you're not going to, you're not going to dive into this head first. You know, it's a, it's a more yeah. of a belly flop situation, I think, if you could find it. And it looks like, I mean, the, the Planetary Society and others have, have imagery. It looks like subglacial water here on Earth, like side by side. The radar signatures look, um, at least my very limited understanding, look basically the same. So it seems like this is a solid case for not just evidence of water in the past or evidence of water that may come and go, but this could be, if confirmed one day, um, the the first quote unquote permanent body of water that we've discovered at Mars, and I think it's interesting, right? Because that's part of part of the idea is that uh, you need to have life, you need to have water, but at the same time, it is it is the Mars story, right? Which is it's also super salty because that's like the story of Mars is like it's salty or they're perchlorates or you know it's it's there's always like a catch where it's like hey this is kind of Earth like but there's also stuff in it that makes it a lot less hospitable to life, at least as we know it, on Earth. But it is interesting to see it. It's another one. I, I Again, people who've listened to this podcast before will know that, that this is just a thing with me, but I am, I am just exhausted about the possibility of life angle for every single discovery that anybody makes about anything on Mars. Because mm-hmm. I, I read I read a story that basically said, oh, they found a lake, which suggests that it's, you know, it's, it's uh, another step in the possibility that there might be life on Mars. 
It's like, this has been happening since 1995, I want to say, like a very long time that we, that every Mars story you can think of comes with the angle of maybe this means that there, we could find life on Mars. And I know it, that's an exciting prospect, but at the same time, like part of me keeps thinking this is actually just the way you get people to pay attention to your discoveries it's just it could be life could could lead to life you know just it doesn't but it's on the way it's on the path and i don't know i just there are there are lots of discoveries like this this is an interesting discovery um i just i don't know i've got some i've got some fatigue when it comes to um, breathless reporting. It's not the fault of the scientists, uh, but it may be the fault of the PR people. Breathless reporting of Mars discoveries that are placed firmly on this sort of like quest for life story that they're telling, because I feel like it's, you know, it's being used to justify, it's to get attention and to justify funding of Mars planetary science. And that's fine because I like Mars planetary science, but it does feel sometimes like they, they, um, they are singing the same song and have been for a couple decades now. That's me. No, I think that's fair. I think you could take all of that and apply it to not just, you know, potential for life on Mars, but it's water on Mars. How many times have we seen? Well, yeah, that's that's it. Anything related to water is immediately a, a kind right. of life on Mars story. And that's not necessarily the most interesting thing about it. I mean, I think it's really interesting that there could be a reservoir of actual water on Mars that is still in existence. I think proof of that, this is a really cool finding. Um I, I, you know, I, I just get frustrated when everything is put in the context of, and this means that there could be life on Mars. Like every single discovery is put in that context. I don't know. Planetary scientists write in and tell me why I'm, <laughs> I'm wrong to wrong to be so so grumpy. I just, you know, this is what we talk about on this podcast a lot, which is there is that combination of how do you get the public interested and how do you because that's how, also how you get funding from governments. And one way you do it is that you you have to tell a a narrative around your uh, around your findings, and this is the narrative for Mars, narrative of choice, apparently. Yeah, I, I don't think that's unfair. I think a lot of people. Uh, I saw some reaction just, you know, from non-spacey people on Twitter because this, this news was everywhere. And yeah. people were like, oh, you know, like, didn't we already do this? Like, haven't, is this, you know, it's in this old news and, you know, you can get into the nitty gritty of like why this is different and it is different. But I think to the sort of the public, it's it's maybe a, a boy who cried wolf situation at this point. If it's not, I think it's getting closer than ever. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when even uh, Emily Lakdawalla did a, a post where she says, like, again, <laughs> yes, again, like, maybe this is the last time, probably. And it's very much like we've seen reports of these before. People get really excited, um, you know, but it, it does look really interesting and, and, and probable that there's a, uh, a little uh, a briny lake or thereabouts in uh, around the Martian yeah. South Pole. Snow Lake. Not like. Mm-mm. Nope, I don't want it. <laughs> uh, you want to tell us about our sponsor this week? Sure. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Eero. Uh, the folks at Eero have built the Wi-Fi they wished they had, and they put it in all of our homes. It's a fast, reliable connection in every room and even in the backyard. It's definitely true in my house. 
the new second generation Eero includes a third 5 gigahertz radio, so it's twice as fast as before. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero will blanket your entire home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. It sits flat on any surface. You plug it into the wall with the included power adapter. You're ready to connect your Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly. And there's even an included thread radio for low power devices like locks, doorbells, and more. There's also the tiny Eero beacon. You just plug it into a wall. That's it. You just plug it in. It goes right in the wall. It's one unit, little block. Plug it in. And that expands coverage into any room. It radios back to the base station and expands your Wi-Fi coverage even more, even without wiring. You just plug it in, and that's it. There's uh, no wires at all. And uh, having just one router, you know, it doesn't make sense in a lot of houses, in most houses, I would say. Even in my little relatively speaking, little house, one router could not reach all of the stuff. And the more uh, smart home devices I get that are in far-flung edges of my house, uh, even more of a problem. So Eero covers all of that stuff. You know, Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. You wouldn't expect the light bulb in your living room to light the master bedroom. You need to spread the electromagnetic waves around, and Eero will do that, creating an enterprise-grade Wi-Fi system in your home in just a few minutes. I have... Three different Eros. I think I've got two bases and a and and a beacon. It might be two beacons and a base uh, in my house, and it's basically eliminated all the dead zones I used to have. The dead zone in the backyard, the dead zone at the front of the house, uh, right at the driveway, gone. Dead zones in bedrooms, dead zones in bathrooms. They're all gone now because of Eero, and it was super easy to set up. Really, just plug it in, run the little app, tell it what I want to do, and uh, we're good. That was it. I mean, there's, there's really not much more to say about it than that. It works incredibly well. It's incredibly easy, and it's super reliable. In fact, um, I had a cable, I had a wire, an Ethernet cable, come out of uh, a router in my bedroom, which cut off my entire back bedroom from the wired network in my house. And I didn't know for probably days, maybe weeks, because the Eero realized it had lost its wired connection and just said, okay, I'll just bridge it wirelessly instead. And all of those devices remained on my home network, uh, but now they were all being bridged wirelessly by the Eero uh, until I realized that the, the wire was not plugged in and plugged it back. I was like, why is this here? And I plugged it back in and then everything worked uh, through the wire again. But just incredibly smart technology. You should definitely check it out. And you can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada by going to Eero.com. That's E-E-R-O.com. And at checkout, select overnight shipping and enter the code LIFTOFF. And that's it. You'll get free overnight shipping. Eero.com, promo code LIFTOFF for free overnight shipping. Thank you, Eero, for filling my house with Wi-Fi and supporting LIFTOFF. Tasty, tasty Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell you, there's that moment where I was like, oh, no, how is it that my entire network didn't go down when this plug came unplugged? And I was like, yeah, the Eero just did it. Mm-hmm. it did, just didn't didn't even didn't even flinch. It was so seamless that it took me. I was like, why isn't my, you know, must be on a wired connection TiVo connection not and it was still working. It was just a little sluggish. I'm like, why is that? And it was only then that I realized that that thing had come unplugged because everything else had just worked flawlessly. It was bizarre. So good job, Eero. Yeah. All right. So, Jason, say that I want to sign up for the Space Force. Can I do that? Mm. Uh, depends on who you ask. Well, you probably not is the answer because you're probably not qualified and they don't want you. No, there's no way. There's no way I'm qualified. 
But uh, there's a lot going on with the Space Force. The Space Force, so the President of the United States said, we're going to have the big, beautiful Space Force. That's what we're going to have. I've instructed the Pentagon to make a Space Force so that we can all go into space and go pew, 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 or whatever one might do with a Space Force. Or build one of those platforms like they were going to do for the space before the space shuttle. So you could have a bunch of people up there like looking down at the Earth. Anyway... Uh, president gets to say that, gets to do that. But you know what also needs to happen is the Congress needs to fund it because it's there are multiple branches of government. And Congress basically said, mm, no, we're not interested in funding a Space Force. So that's interesting because you can say, let's do this all you want. But if there's no budget for it and no money it for it, it's not going to happen. <laughs> However, uh, the, in the, meanwhile, in the executive branch, the people at the Pentagon are still working on the Space Force idea. Um, they're not waiting for Congress to uh, to create it and authorize it. They're kind of working on the idea already. But it sounds like this is a, you know, we're going to do this because the president said we would, but that there's only so far they're going to be able to take it because Congress has to approve it and fund it. So we're kind of in this in this place where... Like, actually going back to funding of NASA, where we mentioned like W First and all of that, this is the one of the things about the separation of powers in the U.S. government is the president can say, I decree this thing, but if it requires an act of Congress to make it happen, you know, the president can decree all he likes, but nothing's going to happen unless Congress gives the okay. So something is happening in the Pentagon. They're trying to lay some groundwork that may be so that they can make a case and get the funding at a later time. Um, it may be that they were caught off guard on by this directive and are trying to figure out, well, if this goes through, what's going to happen? But the, the short version of it is that they're working on something, but Congress has not expressed any inclination at all to fund and uh, officially create uh, a space force. However, that has not stopped some uh, designers from designing prospective Space Force logos as requested by uh, Bloomberg. And we'll put a link in the show notes to this. Uh, they asked these designers to create Space Force logos, and there are a bunch of... Uh, there are a bunch of cool logos. Most of them are intended satirically, I will say. <laughs> uh, but there are, but even so, they are cool and and interestingly designed. There's one where there's a star where one of the points of the star bursts out of the patch on the logo to indicate sort of like pushing the boundaries. There's one with a green alien with uh, with uh, like targets like. We're gonna blast those green aliens. Gotta keep, gotta keep an eye out for him. There's one that uses the font from Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that one made me laugh a lot. There's one that's like it's getting sucked into a black hole, where it says United States Space Force, but it's all twisted because it's gonna. And then in the center, there's just white emptiness. I thought that was a very clever one. And then the one that has really gotten passed around is by Milton Glaser, the famous designer, and it's a silhouette of Dro Donald Trump's head. And inside the head is the word space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Just going to walk away from that. Space Force. Who knew space it was Force. complicated to start a yeah. new yeah, You can't just force. say, let's have a Space Force. You gotta, there's a lot of work that has to be done and a lot of congressional approvals that have to happen. So we will revisit this if the situation changes. Yeah, at this point, that's that. Yeah, until then, I, I can't. I'm done caring about it. All right, so we're going to we're going to wrap up this week on a lighter note. Um, we have this thing on on our podcast download where 
sometimes tech news can get you down, and we end with a fuzzy puppy story, something nice, mm-hmm. something to make people feel good. Sometimes that goes terribly wrong when yes. you're, you're left in charge of it. But Yep, only once. Only once. Uh, people are still mad. Only so, one dog died. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is one of those things, like, you can debate when NASA's anniversary is, because uh, this week marks the 60th year since President Eisenhower signed into law the National Aeronautics and Space Act that actually established NASA as an agency, but then they didn't actually kind of get things rolling until October 1st. Uh, I think because NASA was quiet about this, they internally think it's October 1st, but mm-hmm. um, I like history stuff, and so we get to do it twice, I guess. Um, but really, I, I put this in here because it ties into the previous topic. So NASA had a couple of tweets and, and stuff, but n- not like the sort of blowout thing I think we'll see in October. But during an event, Brian Stein was asked about the Space Force and directly and he he answered it answered it directly um and he said that you know this already exists in the air force that the air force is already paying attention to space and thinking about space they don't need the label of a space force uh for that to be to be going on because it's it's already been uh been happening and he says has that always been the case i will tell you that many members of congress don't think that it has been um, so I appreciated his relatively straightforward answer. I mean, in here, he also says that this is just, that's not NASA's job. He's not interested in being the space force. He's not interested in turning NASA into that. He views this as a separate thing, uh, which made me feel better, but, um, I just found it interesting that he, he did answer it directly. Of course, uh, Jason, NASA wasn't our country's first um, aeronautics agency. Well, that, this is exactly right. The um, the it, this act by uh, Congress and Eisenhower was uh, basically transforming NACA, the National Advisory Council on Aeronautics, in to NASA. So. There was already aeronautic stuff going on. It was basically the act of Congress that turned it into this much uh, larger entity. But they were already working on uh, on space stuff and also, you know, advanced planes and things like that. Hence the aeronautics. Um, but the adding the S in formally and making it NASA that was what uh, what the the National Aeronautics and Space Act did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there you go, 60 years. Um, it's been uh, an amazingly successful six decades. I think, obviously, there's there are that is punctuated with tragedy and with things like the James Webb that maybe haven't worked out the way people would want, but pretty good thinking ahead on old Eisenhower's part. Yeah, yeah, I think thumbs up to, uh, to, <laughs> to Eisenhower. Eisenhower on this one. Yeah, good job. <laughs> thumbs up to Eisenhower, and then, of course, Kennedy followed by saying, let's go to the moon, and then uh, that was... Uh, that was the story, as That's everybody that. knows. So, um, speaking of NACA, I wanted to mention uh, I read a book on my vacation that I'll just throw out a little shout out here at the end of Liftoff. It's a, it's a science fiction book, so not nonfiction. It's entirely fictional, but people who like early day space exploration stuff might enjoy it. Um, it's by Mary Robin at Kowal. It's called The Calculating Stars, and it's out now. 
Um, and it is set in an alternate uh, history, basically, where um, there is a uh, catastrophic event that occurs that changes the course of, of human history and they need to get to space faster than we did. And so it's set in the late 50s and early 60s in the early days of a different kind of space race. But it starts out with like one of the main characters is a scientist at NACA. Um, but uh, NASA basically doesn't get created because they, uh, they have to build something else. I guess it's mostly in the 50s, the books. But it's, it's fun because it is like alt history right stuff involving uh, how they start an astronaut corps and how they solve the same problems that we solved in the 60s. How do they do it? Some of the same characters are, are, are you know, historical figures. And then there's the, the fictional characters. And the main character is uh, uh, basically the way the story is told. You know that she's going to be the first woman astronaut. But she has a lot of travails to get to that point. And it was just incredibly fun to read it. And uh, it made me, you know, it gave me all of those early space vibes um, even though I've read a lot of books on those subjects and this was fiction, uh, that was that was kind of fun to have like an alternate take on that era because that's such a fun era. And I think that's, uh, yeah, worth a, worth a look if you like fictional accounts of early space days, the calculating stars. Cool. Yeah, this looks that's, great. That's my book report. It's good. Well, I think that does it, Jason. I think so. Well, but you know, there's there's always going to be more space news, and we will be uh, back in a fortnight as always. And we also have some uh, 50th anniversary Apollo stuff that uh, coming up. So you know, yeah. there's always more. There's always more. Yeah, Apollo Seven uh, 50th anniversary coming up uh, mid October. So starting to put pull some of that stuff together. I think it'll it's be exciting. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. If you want to find links to the articles we referenced or things we talked about. Uh, check out our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 77. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link in the sidebar. There's a link to our Tumblr where Jason and I post uh, links to space stories in between episodes. Or you can just find us on Twitter. Uh, Jason is jsnell, and he writes sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter as ismh, and I write 512pixels.net. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.